we can play with fuel sources in different situations and kind of get the energy to go where we want it to and to not cause negative feedbacks when we don't want it to. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is a podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluell from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're discussing appetite. And that's not your raging hunger after morning chores, but that's the appetite of your cow herd. And so today we've invited a ruminant nutritionist and a team author, Dr. Barry Bradford from Michigan State University, to discuss the symposium writing that he's recently published titled Fueling Appetite, Nutrient Metabolism and the Control of Feed Intake. Welcome, Barry, to Dairy Science Digest. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, Reagan, thanks for the opportunity. Again, Barry Bradford, I'm the Clinton Meadows Chair in Dairy Management at Michigan State University in a research and extension role here. Very good. And and so this paper is structured maybe a little bit differently from others that we've highlighted on the podcast. Uh, rather than writing up just one singular project, this is a symposium review. So what what does that mean? What is a symposium review? Yeah, it's maybe worth pointing out that this was came about through a symposium in honor of Mike Allen. So Mike Allen was my mentor and the mentor of many of the other people that were part of this symposium, and he just recently retired. So it was a great opportunity to not only honor all the work he, he did over his career, but also to sort of look at the science and say, you know, if we try to pull this all together and, and put it into a package that helps us understand how much progress we've made the last 30 years or so, you know, can we can we clarify, I guess, what we've learned and what we haven't? So a symposium review is taking a view uh, of a piece of science, uh, of an area of science that we might cover across three or four speakers and say in this space within this theme, I guess, can we summarize the advances that have been made over decades? You know, when we think about energy metabolism and and what fuels that beast, I, I really think of the dairy cow and I often associate her to an engine, right? And I don't want to alienate anyone by specifically calling out the Hemi or, you know, the LT6 or, <laughs> but all jokes aside, you know, she she has a fuel. The fuel that's within her is driven by intake. And if we can somehow manipulate or, or learn more about her intake and her drive to eat or what that appetite looks like, then it helps us as, as ruminant nutritionists be more effective in getting intake. Can you talk a little bit about how important is every single pound of dry matter intake? Yeah, it's a it's a great question you bring up, Regan. I think you know, actually, this is an example of where dairy producers 80 years ago might have had more insight to this because people were individually feeding cows and by hand often. And so you really notice the cow, you know, is wolfing down 150, 180 pounds of wet feed every day because you're having to <laughs> pitch it, right? Really? Whereas now we've got cows in big pens. And, you know, if you if you separate pens by level of production, you may notice some dry matter intake differences across pens. But um, on a lot of farms, it's not tracked super close either. So, you know, those of us that do research and still track individual cow intakes, yeah, it's astounding the range of difference across cows and how much they'll eat. So some cows will be at 45 pounds, some cows at 75 pounds of dry matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and absolutely. So I, a rule of thumb that a lot of people use is if you get an additional pound of dry matter intake, 
the marginal milk you get on that typically we estimate is about two and a half pounds because you've already kind of paid the maintenance costs right you paid to have the cow there and so extra feed that she takes in in theory should drive quite a bit of additional milk cream on top that's what i like to call it right yeah and so i mean intake is is the name of the game and so for ages we've always talked about how feed intake can be associated with you know her total gut capacity and the quality of the hay and and the relationship between those two things but could you talk a little bit about what what is that kind of old school model missing that's a great question yeah i think when people have tried to sort of make that scientific or, or clarify what we're thinking about we've really identified two basic ways that animals decide not to eat one is what just simply called gut fill and uh, as a joke, I always talk about, like, you don't go to an amazing steakhouse and get a massive salad at the beginning of the meal, right? Because you're not going to want to finish your steak. It's, you're wasting your money. Um, but it's kind of how it works. Honestly, there's just a flat-out physical limitation to how much space there is in the gut. So if we feed a diet that's taken a, an absurd example, if you fed a diet that's 60% wheat straw, um, cows will not eat as much. And we think the main reason for that is stuff doesn't move out of the rumen very quickly and it feels full because it literally is full. On the other hand, we could feed, you know, in a feedlot scenario, we could feed um, extremely high energy density diets with a lot of grain, a lot of concentrate. It doesn't take much space. It flows out of the rumen quickly, but those animals don't keep eating forever. So why do they stop? Right. And that's where we think there's internal chemical sensing, nutrient sensing mechanisms that say, hey, there's a heck of a lot of energy. There's a lot of nutrients here. Um, we don't need any more right now. Like there's At some point, it's not healthy to keep consuming. So we think there's those two sort of mechanisms keeping the body in check. So yeah. how is this idea different? Right. right. Let's let's dive in. Yeah. So the, the hepatic oxidation theory is really what Again, Mike Allen is probably best known for in his career is uh, developing that concept. Let's let's just pause and say genius. <laughs> Thank you for all your contributions, Doc. Yeah, yes. go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and a great guy to work with. But you know, he was teaching work coming out of the sort of the rodent research world and, and sort of seeing how this might apply to understanding some things in dairy cattle that didn't really fit with that. I guess, simpler, older concepts. So mm -hmm. on the high energy side of things, if we're feeding relatively high energy diets to dairy cattle, not feedlot diets, but, you know, getting mm -hmm. towards that end of the scale, he noticed in lots of experiments that if he just switched how corn was processed, going mm -hmm. from, say, dry ground corn to high moisture corn, which is pretty common in Michigan, he'd see in some cases massive changes in feed intake. We're talking mm -hmm. six, seven pounds of decreased feed intake with the high moisture corn diets in many cases. And these are diets, they're pretty high in starch, but they're not uncommon in, in Michigan. People mm -hmm. tend to feed high starch. So he's taking very relevant, you know, field examples and testing them in experiments and seeing some massive response. And if you just say that these animals are responding to having more energy, well, at least in the lab, we wouldn't expect the dry corn and the high moisture corn to have very much difference in energy. Right. Maybe 1%. On paper, yeah. Right. But not enough to say you're going to stop eating by seven pounds, you know, eat right. seven pounds less. So that's really what drove his interest in how could we possibly explain this? Um, 
And that's really what led to this idea that, well, maybe it's not just calories coming in. Maybe it's actually which nutrients are getting absorbed, what organs are using them, mm-hmm. and maybe they're triggering these uh, physiological mechanisms in a different way. Uh, fascinating thoughts. And so let's talk a little bit about about those organs. And um, it looked like the paper called out specifically the liver. Let's give the liver some love. Um, could you describe a little bit about the important functions of the bovine liver? You bet. I always, I always think back. So uh, I did my undergraduate at Iowa State and my advisor there was Don Bites. And he taught this biochemistry class that I took. And I remember him walking into class one day and just saying, can you live without your liver? And I was like, you know, at that time I was like, I don't know. I never thought about it. Now it seems so stupid to me. It's like, no, the answer is no. (laughs) But um, yeah, we don't, we don't talk about it a lot uh, out, you know, outside of the scientific world, maybe, but it's, it's absolutely the central sort of the quarterback of the metabolic system. So it's responsible for detoxifying. It's converting nutrients. If you, fast even overnight your liver is responsible for keeping your blood sugar up so you don't go into a coma and die right it's a pretty big deal yeah so um the hepatic oxidation theory hepatic is another term to refer to the liver so it's really about liver oxidation so the reason that started to get the focus here is again it's the quarterback of the metabolic system and it takes in some nutrients that need to be converted or stored and it doesn't take some nutrients in because they're allowed to pass through and go to the rest of the body. And maybe it's also worth pointing out that all the blood flowing out of the gut, whether it's the rumen or the small intestine, large intestine, all funnels through the liver before it goes to the rest of the body. Mm. So mm-hmm. it has this sort of ability to sort of mask some changes that are coming from the gut if it needs to, to keep the rest of the body sort of at balanced a out. Right? Yeah, right. So one thing that's really interesting in a bovine, because she doesn't really get to absorb much sugar because the bacteria have chewed it all up, Mm -hmm. a huge difference is she's got to make most all of her glucose for her body compared to like us. Unless you Mm -hmm. eat a ketogenic diet, you're mostly absorbing your glucose, right? So there's a huge difference in how the cow liver works with that versus most other species and that. She doesn't grab any glucose. She wants to leave it there, anything that gets absorbed. And she's busy pulling in things that can be used to make glucose. Precursors, yeah. Right. And propionate is one of those most important ones, the most important one. And that's where that starts to tie back to diets. Because if we feed a fermented starch source like high moisture corn, Mm -hmm. we get much more and more rapid production of propionate in the root. Whereas like dry corn, you get some of that for sure but more of it's flowing to the small intestine getting digested in a different way. Slower. And so the the propionate will then feed into that TCA cycle and, and really cause a huge impact on that. Okay, and so so the other organ kind of in in this game, this football game, you've got the quarterback being the the liver, and and then there's some discussion about the hypothalamus and and its communication to the brain. Can you talk a little bit about that pathway and how's that happen? Yeah. Okay. So maybe the hypothalamus is the coach, right? It gets to actually make the decisions. Um, we'll ignore audibles for now. But, um, yeah, clearly, and this is where there's still controversy. Okay. But um, there's clearly growing, growing evidence that there's lots of crosstalk that affects lots of things in the body 
between the brain and the nervous system that goes down into our body, including the gut. And they always say that there's actually more nerve bundles in your gut than there is in your brain, which is wow, kind of interesting. Maybe it yeah. makes sense, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the key nerves that actually connects the brain to the nervous system in the viscera is is called the vagus nerve and then it splits off into lots of branches and the anatomy is pretty complicated and that's what leads to some of the controversies on interpretation but big picture what we do know is and actually some of the early work on this was done in ruminants which is kind of fun some sheep mm -hmm. studies where they showed clearly in the 90s that if you infuse propionate to sheep they really back off on intake way more mm -hmm. than uh, to other nutrients but then they further showed they actually went in and did a surgery and literally cut that vagus nerve mm -hmm. and then infused propionate and showed that they no longer then diminished their intake in response to propionate so huh. most likely yeah. the, the reason that propionate is suppressing intake is triggering something in the body that then goes through the vagus nerve to the brain rather than directly affecting the brain Wow. So that's pretty cool, right? And that then, is very cool. Uh, she's such a complicated beast. Then since then, there's been lots of studies in lots of species, lots of mouse and rat studies, and they've cut the nerve at different places. And so it becomes kind of a big, messy story. But the bottom line is we know that nerve is, is deeply involved in some of these sensory mechanisms. So in, in my mind, I'm immediately going to, because it's my favorite topic, uh, the transition dairy cow, because you really have two major appetite times of her life. You've got peak lactation, where you're really trying to drive maximum amount of intake. Right. And then you've got that, that poor pathetic transition cow that is trying to uh, get into the groove and and maybe sometimes falls off the wagon and doesn't quite eat correctly. And so how does this conversation circle around that particular problem child if and when she goes off intake, uh, goes off feed early in lactation? Great question. And I will point out there are four symposium reviews from this symposium. And there's another one that's really specifically focused on um, how do we apply this to how do we actually formulate diets for cows? So I don't know mm -hmm. if it's actually out yet, but it will be coming. So I'd point people in that direction sooner or later. But I'll be sure to create a link to the podcast once that paper comes out, because I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a great question. And there's been, it's really just been recently as, as the, the hot concept developed, then it sort of led to new experiments. And my take home in transition cows is it's been a little bit noisy in terms of, are we better off feeding starch in the low 20% or the high 20%? It's been a little bit hit or miss. But one thing that I think has been pretty consistent is if we test like a dry ground corn versus a high moisture corn or super fermentable, most of the time, it looks to me like you don't want to feed that super fermentable right. starch at that time. Like slow starch is probably better while she's trying to get off, off the ground. And I think some of that is we tend to think, talk about there's a lot of fatty acids coming to the liver then. And if you bring a ton of propionate, a ton of fermentable starch driving that, you tend to just lead to lots of oxidation of fat and propionate together. 
and it shuts off the meals quickly is what it looks like to us. Yeah. And she, she says, I'm not hungry. I've got what I need. Right. All this propionate's aids floating around. I'm, Even I'm good. She's wrong, yeah. Right? She is so <laughs> wrong. She is so wrong. Uh, so that's where the sensory mechanism may be shooting us in the foot. On the other hand, when she's then cruising and she's making 150 pounds of milk, mm -hmm. that's the time where that high moisture corn can really fit nicely. Cause she's like, desperate for glucose to make all this black make it happen it yeah right? right really fascinating all these oses are just uh long chains of carbon and carbon is energy and she does a phenomenal job converting carbon from one source to the next source and, and turning it into delicious dairy products um and that's why she is so amazing let's see so you you kind of segued into this already, but what's this all mean for boots on the ground dairymen? You know what what specific questions should guys be asking their nutritionists to ensure that they are fueling the appetite of their herd? Great question. I think first of all, there is a dichotomy here that it's probably worth acknowledging. So on one hand, on the genetic side, we have these feed save traits now where it's like, well, I thought you guys said we we're trying to find cows that don't eat as much. What are you talking about? Now you want me to drive more. So it's actually, it sounds conflicting, but it's really not. We want to find animals that genetically don't have to eat a huge amount to make a lot of milk. But then within that genetic framework, you know, if we have an efficient cow, if we can get her to eat more, she should make even Maximize. more milk. Right? So yeah. it's really kind of two different things, but it sounds conflicting. So it's not... So yeah, what questions should we talk about? I think, you know, we've talked about uh, transition cows. There's an important balance there between getting enough gut fill that we sort of, I think, diminish our risks of displaced avomasum and things like that. Mm -hmm. Some of that's just, you know, having your nutritionist help you keep an eye on, are you overstocking your fresh pen? Do you, you know, are you mm -hmm. managing stocking density? All those practicalities are important here. But then once you have that down, thinking about, are we getting the fuel mixes right? Are we, should we look at more sugar maybe, like uh, sugar sources as opposed to starch? And I think there's some interesting things that can be done there. And we talked about peak lactation cows. Personally, I think a lot of people are too cautious with peak cows. If you mm. can separate them out, it's shocking what they can handle in right. terms of diet formulation. Yeah. And I think there's room to, to move there. And then last, I did want to point out, there's actually implications of hot for uh, lower production, late lactation cows as well, mm. because the headache that we always seem to have is um, how do we keep them from getting too fat? fat? Like if you bred her pretty late and you really don't want to get rid of her maybe you should but if you really don't want to <laughs> um how do we deal with that and you know this is partly hot it's partly um just nutrient partitioning but there's some neat experiments out there where people dropped starch brought in non-forage fiber sources for late lactation cows and not only helps control body weight gain mm. but also actually in some cases are getting more milk by yeah, you know pulling right. starch back which is kind of antithetical right <laughs> right right and but so, <clears throat> yeah controlling her her overall condition that that's good so i think it, we can play with fuel sources uh in different situations and kind of get the energy to go where we want it to and to not cause negative feedbacks when we don't want it to that's fantastic. So once again, we're humbled by the complex dairy cow, understanding that feed intake is controlled by all these different multiple signals that uh, that ultimately fundamentally creates the concert of an amazing beast. 
Well, Dr. Bradford, this has been very informative and I want to thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day today to learn a little bit about energy metabolism and how to appropriately fuel this machine we call a dairy cow. I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the January edition of the Dairy Science Digest, a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to your ears. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles that are actively impressed. This is sound science to base your management decisions around and provided by your University of Missouri Dairy Team. So please be sure to like, subscribe, and share to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Blue with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day.